series that I'm calling Tough Questions because we're wrestling our way through some of the top objections to Christianity. When you try to engage unbelievers about Jesus or the gospel or Christianity, we've been looking at some of the top objections. And today, I'm going to try to walk us through what most people would agree is the number one objection to Christianity. What about all the evil and suffering in our world? Does that not automatically exclude the existence of a good, all-powerful God? What about all the evil and suffering in our world? And I hope you realize that things today are not worse than they've ever been. This is the perennial top objection. You can go back hundreds of years and find David Hume and other atheists and philosophers espousing this. Why? Because it's not just an intellectual problem, folks. It's a very personal and painful problem. Because evil and suffering touch all of our lives at some point. If it hasn't happened to you yet, just keep living. It touches all of us at some point in our life where we, where we cry out, Whoa, I was taught there's a good God who has power and yet this is happening to me or to someone around me. I don't know what to do with this. And so the, the question is most often phrased this way. How can you say there's a good God in light of all the evil and suffering that is in our world today? But now before we dig into some of what I hope will be some answers, and please know, disclaimer right up front, this is not going to be some like, oh my, that just stuck the landing, bow on top, everything's solved. So if you were hoping for that, you can exit now. But it's not like we don't have anything. I'm going to try to frame this up and give us some handholds, but it will not exhaustively answer all your questions. But it doesn't leave us with like, I have no idea either. But here's, here's, the, here's the caution I want to give you. When someone raises this objection, do not jump in with both feet and try to argue them out of it. I'm going to try to give you some things that are, that are right that we should ask and we should say and we should introduce into the conversation. But folks... When someone raises that objection, it is almost always not because some professor at university said it and so now they're parroting it. It's because they have gone through something horrible or at least someone they love at close range, they watched something horrible. So please let your first response be, oh, why do you ask that? And if they can see on your face you actually truly care and you're not just trying to cram Christianity down their throat, you just might get to hear their story of something horrific that they've walked through. And then, here's what we need to do. Be gentle. Be a good listener. And express genuine sorrow. Say, I am so sorry. That sounds so hard. Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, folks, didn't say, hallelujah, I'm going to solve this whole thing. Why is everybody crying? What did Jesus do? Wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. Sin, brokenness, sorrow, the brokenness of what people... He's a compassionate God. He knew what he was going to do next, but he wept. So, listen well. Be gentle, express genuine sorrow, and then that's not to say you may still have an opportunity to share some of what I'm going to share. But oh, please, start there. Start there.
So, before I walk through some of what I hope might give you some framing and answer, I hope you realize I got nothing besides the Bible. It doesn't matter what Pastor Brad thinks or some other human being. Oh, praise God for the Bible. So I want to frame up this whole subject, and it is tough, with the Bible. Because here's what I hope you realize. I tell you this all the time. I love the Bible for so many reasons, and here's one of them today. The Bible, unlike other holy books that are out there for other religions. Unlike other holy books, the Bible does not ignore suffering, nor does it try to airbrush it away. Instead, the Bible hits it head on. In fact, Christianity, folks, is the only religion that tackles suffering head on by stepping into it. I chafe under the media who constantly, if, they, if we allow for God, try to convince us. It's all the same. It's all the same. Anyone who wants to believe in God, just choose your flavor. Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Christianity. So not true. You think about it. Suffering is something that every human struggles with, so every religion ought to address it in some manner, and they do. Buddhism, what's the answer? Oh, just empty yourself. Good luck on that. Empty yourself. The only reason you suffer is because you have desires for something better. Kill all desire. Okay. Hinduism. Oh, Hinduism, you're suffering? Yeah, well, you're paying for a previous life because you live multiple times. So your suffering now is because of what you did before and therefore we should not even come in and try to relieve the suffering or rescue you from it because we wouldn't be doing you a favor. You need to pay for it in this life in hopes that you'll have a better next life. What a horrible view, which is why places like India and other countries that embrace Hinduism have horrific poverty that goes unnoticed and undealt with because they don't think they're supposed to help. Their religion says don't help. Islam. Oh yeah, there's a God. Folks, there's not even a word in their religion for God as Father because he's not a loving Gracious, compassionate, heavenly father. He is just a cold, stoic, powerful God. And so if you're suffering, it's the will of Allah. The will of Allah. Just buck up under it. Bow down under it. It's God's will. There's no love. There's no compassion. There's no... That is very different than Christianity, folks. So now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's frame this up. Genesis chapter 1... Beginning of verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Oh, my word. God, look at me. Right there, we learned something huge that you're not going to hear from the world. We are not the same as monkeys and pigs and golden retrievers and aardvarks. God created Human beings in his own image, in the likeness of God. We, of all of creation, are created with a God likeness and we bear his image that sets us apart from every other created being, which that is the reason why Christianity believes there's a dignity and a worth to every human being. Not when they become a Christian, from birth. And therefore we can think, we can reason, we can interpret And we can make choices. But we're learning a lot right here that can be helpful. In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female bear the image of God and represent God and have dignity and worth. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skip to verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made and indeed it was very good. Now folks, there's God's original creation. There's God's original design. There's God's original plan. Now if you've been around the church at all, then you know uh, something happened. And it didn't take long. Genesis chapter 3, we're not going to go there for the sake of time. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that as image bearers in the image of God and likeness of God, as free moral agents, we chose to use our God likeness to rebel against God and to turn away from God. And in that moment, it threw us and all of creation under the weight of sin and corruption and twistedness and chaos. But instead of showing you that it happened, I want to show you the effects of it because that matches this message more. So how did that impact human beings? And how did that impact creation? Go to Romans chapter 1. Let me show you the effect of our rebellion against God in Romans chapter 1. What did that do to us? We thought it would lead to freedom. We thought it would lead to autonomy. It led to something very different. Romans 1, verse 21. Because although they knew God. All right, right here, look at me again. There's no human being that doesn't know there's a God. There's lots of human beings that wish there wasn't one. Okay? So the Bible, you're created in the image of God. You know there's a God. You know there's a God. You may write things that say different. You may say things that... You know there's a God. For although they knew God. Here's the problem. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. So this rebellion and this sin that entered in, it causes us to have futile thoughts. So... We can think things are exactly what we ought to do next. And it's not. Futility. And then we have dark hearts. Which is why really smart people, never mind your ACT score, right? Can really smart people propose really stupid things that they think are really what we should do? Yeah. With all kinds of degrees hanging off the end of your name. Professing to be wise. We know better. We know better. We know better. We know better. If sex is good, do it anywhere and with anyone at any time. Why put guardrails around it? Because God's a good God and he gave us a good gift and he gave the context for that good gift. And sexual immorality has led to the destruction of people and the harm of people. But professing to be wise, they became, say it, fools. Now look at some of this foolishness. Skip down to verse 28. And even as they... Did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Again, I'm trying to help you here. God is in their knowledge. They just don't want to retain it. So it's like you start off your hard drive and your default setting is to have God in the equation. But you don't want it because I want to be autonomous. I want to do my own thing. They do not 
like to retain God and their knowledge. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And then look at this. Who knowing... The righteous judgment of God. You know these things are not right. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God. That those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only do the same. But approve of those who practice them. Have you ever noticed? We don't just want to sin. We want others to sin with us. We don't like sinning alone. Give me a crowd. So not only do they go hard after these things, but they approve of and encourage everyone else to do the same. That's the effect of this rebellion when we turned away from God and exercised as free moral agents as he made us a choice to say, I think we can do better without you. Now, does that list not sound like the news today? Right? I mean, this... Everything described there is like, this is happening. And it's because men and women turned away from God and are rebellion to, in, in rebellion to God. God did not create this kind of world, but we chose it. Well, what about creation? How did it impact creation? Jump over to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 20. Romans 8, verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, there's that word again. So we as sinners now have futile thoughts. We think things that make perfect sense to us that are actually foolish and nonsense and lead to destruction. But we think, oh my goodness, this makes perfect sense. I should do this and others should do this. It says this sin also impacted creation and it is subjected to futility We didn't used to have a world where people were killing, animals were killing each other and there was poisonous snakes and you were constantly threatened by everything, by creation. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. So Paul's taught about that day when we are set free and creation is set free Because of the return of Jesus Christ to make all things right. But what he's saying is right now, creation itself is under the bondage of corruption. Sin has affected all of creation. The creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Folks, that groaning... And those birth pangs, that's hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and floods that wipe out thousands of lives. That's creation groaning under the corruption of and weight of sin. Verse 23. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Human beings groan in this world and creation groans in this world. 
And so to walk us through this gnarly question, here's what I want to do. I want to ask a series of questions myself and try to answer them. Here's the first one. Number one. So why does evil and suffering exist? Well, if you're paying attention, as I read the scriptures, I hope you realize evil and suffering exist, folks, because we exist. We chose this. We chose to turn away from God. And it plunged both us and creation into this condition where we are now. As we chose to sin and we still choose to sin against God and against other people. And so here's what I would actually propose. The presence of evil in our world is not so much an argument against Christianity as it is an exclamation point that proves what the Bible teaches that something is tragically wrong with us now and the human nature that we have now. I hope you realize I've had five kids and I don't believe yours are any different. We're not born good and inclined towards good. Oh, please, take the biggest cookie. No, no, really, really. I I just couldn't do it. I want you. No. Mine! That's a low-level evil, right? But folks, did you have to teach any of your kids, hey, lie, cheat, grab, be selfish, think only of yourself? I didn't. I didn't sit them down on the couch and say, you guys, way too nice. This is sick, right? I mean, no. We are born bad and inclined towards evil. That's our nature now. From birth, no one has to teach it. We're born that way. That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Folks, it all, all, this evil and Starts in the heart. It starts in the heart of men and women. So get this. Evil is not just what's happening to us. It's what's happening in us and through us. As Christians, I hope that you're not... I don't want you to ever become numb to atrocities and calamities. To the point that you say, oh well, whatever. That's what the Bible teaches. Not advocating that. But folks, we should not be the ones that say... How could someone do that? Oh, take an automatic weapon and gun down people in a theater. Oh, what went wrong in his childhood? Surely he was beaten. Surely he was tortured. And then they find out, no, middle class, really nice life, given lots of things. What happened? He happened. His heart happened. And we're no better than him. So as we talk about this, I hope you don't have yourself in a category outside of evil and say, where are these evil people out there somewhere doing evil things? The fact that you have not done some of the atrocities that other human beings commit does not mean you could not. Latent within every one of us is the capacity to do every and anything you see being done. So get over this like, how could a mother do that? How could a... The Bible answers how. Sin. 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 Oh, and here's here's what I also find like, okay... When people say, but they'd never done anything like this before. There's a first time for everybody, right? They just hadn't wanted something bad enough. The circumstances weren't. There's a first time for everyone that commits some horrible sin. The fact that they were just, but they seem so normal. Yeah, right. 
heart. It's a heart. It's a heart. It's, it's our condition. It's how we are born now. And so, the presence of evil. Most thinking people don't argue that there's no evil. You might find some groups every now and then that want to smoke pipes and wear a turtleneck and debate this. Does evil really exist? I find that when suffering and evil lands in their own life, they change their tune, put down the pipe, strip off the turtleneck. So most thinking people acknowledge the presence of evil. And so that leads me to my second question. It's here, but here's the real question. Does the existence of evil automatically disprove the existence of a good and all-powerful God. If you admit there's evil and you admit it on a horrible level, does that automatically mean in the face of that, you can no longer hold to the existence of God? Certainly not a good, all-powerful God. Folks, I would say no, it does not. Acknowledging the existence of evil instead of trying to airbrush it away or ignore it like some other religions does not mean we can no longer hold to the existence of a good, all-powerful God. In fact, I would propose to you folks, this universal human outrage against evil actually establishes the existence of a good God and is a testimony that we are created in His image. Now, there are sick people who reach the point of having sinned so much in horrific ways, their conscience is seared. The Bible talks about they just become numb. But most people are still horrified by horrible things. Why? Why is there this outrage? Why is it that it's not just Christians that are alarmed about sex trafficking? Unbelievers also. I'll tell you why. Because they're created in the image of God. And there's a sense of justice and there's a sense that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. This human outrage over evil, folks, actually testifies to the existence of a good God. You say, Brad, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. In order to call something good or evil, folks, you have to have an underlying standard of right and wrong. And we do, because we're created in his image. We have that sense of right and wrong and justice. But to have that sense of right and wrong and justice, there has to be a moral transcendent law giver. Where did that come from? There has to be a God outside of us that would have given us this. Let me illustrate it to you this way. Shadows prove sunshine. All right, you realize there can be sunshine with no shadows. But if I look out my back door like yesterday and I see shadows splashed across my patio, folks, there's sunshine somewhere out there. You cannot have shadows without sunshine. The very existence of shadows testifies to the presence of sunshine somewhere. I would propose to you on a moral level, God is the sunshine that allows us to see the horrific shadow of evil in our world. He's the one that gives this and put it in us and reminds us and testifies, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right, that's not right. Without the objective moral standard of a good God, you have no basis for calling anything good or evil. That's why I appreciate Richard Dawkins being an honest atheist. See, we got new atheists today. The rage now today is new atheists that want to tell you, oh, you can be happy, you can have purpose and meaning with your life without God. True atheists, whether it was, you know, all the guys that killed themselves to prove, I want to be honest with what I'm saying, like Nietzsche and others, 
True atheists would say, if God doesn't exist, there is no good and evil. There is no standard for right and wrong. There is no justice. It just is what it is. Welcome to the human race and welcome to a messed up random world. So Dawkins says things like this. And I quote, In a universe of blind physical genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reasoning to it, nor any, say it. Without God, you don't have justice. Without God, you have no standard for justice. Without God, you have no reason for justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. Now that's the logical conclusion of rubbing out the existence of God, which is what Dawkins has done. And so if someone says they don't believe in God, and then they express outrage over some kind of injustice in this world, then I would ask them, why are you so upset? Because if you don't believe in God, then where are you getting this standard of good and evil? Now, sometimes the pushback is, well, you just know. You just know. Uh, Somehow Hitler didn't just know. Somehow in North Korea, they haven't gotten word. You, You can look all over the world and say, apart from God and God working in us and giving us a transcendent moral standard, people do not just know. But now get this. Even when people do hold on to God. So Dawkins and others have said the presence of evil eliminates the possibility of God existing. But there are those who still want to hold on to God. But think that if you hold on to God in the face of this kind of evil and suffering in our world. And and please don't hear me saying it's not a big deal. It's horrific. That you have to reduce God. You'll have to reduce him. If you're going to hold on to a concept of God. You've got to reduce him in the face of this kind of evil. Listen to me. The existence of evil does not require the reduction of God. It does not. So here's the argument that gets recycled over and over, and it's been around for centuries. David Hume and others proposed it, but it just gets repackaged in modern books. Nothing new under the sun. But the argument went like this. Okay, Christian, you say there's a good God, right? Our kids grow up singing, God is so good. So we believe in a good God and... You say he's all-powerful and sovereign, and yet you admit this kind of level of evil and suffering in our world. These three things cannot be all true at the same time. Now, this is an example of human beings using their own logic to reason themselves into some very wrong places. We do it a lot. And so here's what they'll say. You either have to say God is good, but he's not all powerful because he doesn't stop it. If he had the power to stop it, he would. If you're good, you'd stop it. Since he doesn't stop it, he's only good and he can't stop evil. Or you can jump over here and say, okay, no, God is all powerful, but he's not good. Because if he was good, he would stop it. But since he doesn't exercise his power to stop it, he's not good. You either have an all-powerful God that's not good, or you have a good God that's not powerful. And this 
has been recycled over and over. You'll see it in modern books. You'll see it in movies. But the Bible teaches. That's why we, if, if we were left to our own human reasoning and logic, there's a lot of things we wouldn't know right. The Bible teaches God is good. And the Bible teaches God is all-powerful. And yet, he allows evil and suffering, not just in this world in general, but into our lives in particular for reasons that we cannot understand because he's not revealed it to us. That's what the Bible actually teaches. He is good. He is all-powerful. And he has allowed. Notice, he did not create evil. He is not the author of evil. That's the result of our rebellion but he's sovereign enough and good enough to use evil and suffering for purposes that we cannot fathom. And yet many times people balk at that. But folks, think about it. We are finite. He's infinite. If you have a God that you fully understand and can explain every single thing, I would say to you, you have a different God than the God of the Bible. Because his thoughts and his wisdom and what he's doing are beyond us. Let me give you an example of this modern, what, what our culture does. Rabbi Harold Kushner in 1981 wrote the incredibly popular bestsellers, probably sold five million copies now. As he wrestled his way through suffering, and he wrestled with these two attributes of God. I always thought he was good, and I always thought he was all-powerful. All I mean, he's a Jew, so he's got the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows both good and all-powerful. But as he wrestled his way through this, he let go of all-powerful. And he landed with just a good, weeping God who, who weeps over your suffering. And he wishes it had not happened. And he wished he could have stopped it, but he couldn't. Now, I'm not meaning to be sarcastic, folks, but I have a mother for that. Hope you realize what I'm saying. My mother, she weeps whenever I suffer. Oh my goodness, I don't even tell her some of the things that you all do. <laughs> because she loves me and she'd hate you. Right? She doesn't need details. She's for me. And she doesn't want me to suffer. But my mother has no power to stop anything, change anything. But she weeps with me. She hurts with me. She loves me. Kushner says this, quote, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. Can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason that there is randomness in the universe? Now you think for a minute, folks, how different is that than Dawkins' quote? We still have randomness. We still have no explanation for what's going on. But we've just added a small, sad, impotent God on the margin. That not only are you weeping, he's weeping. The Bible teaches something very, very different than that. Now you can go over here to this side. And you can find examples where our culture has held on to God. And held on to all-powerful and jettisoned good 
And they're like, he's powerful, but he's just a stoic, cold, dispassionate God who does not care enough to do something about it. So over here we got a God who's good and he cares. He has no power to do anything about it. Over here we've got a powerful God, just doesn't care enough to do anything about it because he's not good. An example, years ago, the movie Patch Adams. In the movie Patch Adams, the script writers let go of good and land just with powerful, dispassionate, dispassionate cold. Robin Williams plays Dr. Patch Adams in that movie. We're in one of the most tragic, troubling scenes. And, and I appreciate the movie puts it right there with the stuff that happens in our lives that causes us to say, oh, what am I supposed to do with this? How can there be a good God and he's all powerful and yet this is happening to me right now? Patch Adams is standing on the edge of a cliff just after his fiance has been tragically murdered. Oh, but there's more. While she was trying to help someone and do something good. Isn't that what causes like, oh, this makes no sense. This was not a wicked person doing something wicked. We all feel that. That's what we come up against. And folks, here's what I'd propose to you. You do not have to accept randomness in this world. You do have to accept mystery. Now, I know Christians get criticized whenever we raise the mystery word. Unbelievers like to say, well, there you are, throwing the trump card of mystery as if that can cover up and solve. Folks, I'm not throwing a trump card. I'm just speaking Bible. There's a measure of mystery. There just is. It's not random, but there's mystery. And in fact, God does care enough about us and know that we struggle with this. He gave us an entire book of the Bible that pushes us right up against this. But this is not a wicked person. This is not someone that was in the middle of doing horrific things. But horrific suffering just slammed into their life. Title of the book? Job. Is it a short book? Oh, no, it's not. Because you cannot capture this kind of pain on a postcard or in a tweet. It's a 42-chapter long And it's a wandering book and there's rabbit trails and there's good days and bad days. But at the end of the day, he gave it to us more for us to realize, oh my goodness, okay, I'm not the first one to have had these thoughts. Oh my goodness. He does not give Job an explanation. He does give Job a greater revelation of who he is when he begins to say, Job, I know, I know you don't understand this, but could I remind you about a hundred other things you don't understand? So he's not cold and dispassionate, but he just reminds them, for his purposes, he's, he's not always promised that you'll get a detailed explanation for what just happened in your life. But often when we have a greater revelation of who he is, we can persevere. It can help us. And so Patch Adams does not have that. And he's standing on the cliff and he says what often we think, whether we say it out loud or not. He looks up into the sky. He says, so answer me, please. Tell me what you're doing. An actor of silence, just like the one right here. He says, okay, let's consider the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. Maybe you should have had a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. 
Now, as awful as that sounds, I hope you realize probably everyone in here has gone there at some point and thought, are you compassionate? Oh my goodness, how could this be happening this way? But the movie writers do. What they're doing in that moment, folks, is what they love to do regarding God. If they do present God, they grossly misrepresent God by leaving out one of the most damning pieces of information that would help us to understand what in the world is going on now and why is there so much suffering and evil Dr. Adam says, you create man. Agree. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Agree. Man dies. Agree. But that is not the whole story. It's not even half the story. Folks, the reality of what we have revealed to us from Scripture is that God creates man in his own image and places him in a glorious world free from suffering and pain and evil, but man exercises his freedom as a moral agent with God-likeness to turn away from God and rebel against God, thereby throwing himself and all of creation into chaos and the weight of corruption and sin and suffering, so that now man, yes, suffers enormous amounts of pain and creation itself groans with tsunamis and hurricanes and earthquakes that wipe out thousands of people but God despite the fact that we rebelled against him and rejected him took on flesh and stepped into this groaning rocking reeling world of chaos and darkness and did not live in a sheltered palace surrounded by bodyguards and personal assistants but was right in the mix with us to ultimately not solve suffering but to solve the source of suffering our sin problem and to solve it by taking the full brunt of evil on himself in our place there is no other religion that presents that every other religion has God outside of our world telling you what to do here's a list work hard check off the boxes try to be good enough try, try to do better only Christianity has a savior the God man who takes on flesh and doesn't shout down to us encouragement and say, do more kind deeds, less evil, more kindness. He comes into our world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to live the only perfect life and to satisfy God's holy demands and then to have God's wrath poured out on him instead of you in payment for your sins so that you could be set free from sin and so that this entire creation could be redeemed and restored to a new heaven and a new earth. That's Christianity. That's the gospel, and that is unique among all world religions. I'll never forget one time, I think I told you, but it's still just, I can't help but think of it whenever I get going like this. On a plane, I was sitting next to a young man in camo who was on his way to Iraq for a third term. So I said, do you ever think about dying? Nice lead-in question. He said, oh yeah, all the time. But then he said, 
I just got to get iniquity out of my life. I got to get iniquity out of my life. I got to, who talks like that? I said, yes, you do. But there's no hope that you can ever do that. I said, that's why Jesus came and perfectly kept the law and then gave his life in payment for our sin. He interrupted me. He didn't even let me finish. He said, oh, that's such good news. I was like, yeah, we say that sometimes, good news. That's what we call it also. It's such good news. His face lit up. He had been trying. He'd gotten around some Mormons who said, you got to get iniquity out of your life. Come back and let us know when you're doing better. Christianity, the gospel, Jesus meets you right where you are. Not come back when you're doing better and you've cleaned up yourself and we might see if you can get a card that says you can be a Christian. Hallelujah! Jesus came for sinners. And he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so this good news of the gospel, folks, is the answer to my next question, Roman numeral three. If God is good, why hasn't he stopped evil? Or done something about it? Well, first, I hope you realize from just the passages I've read, here's the first part of it. If God were to completely eliminate evil, he would need to eliminate us. We tend to think, you know, stop it now. Who do you want him to start with? Her? Probably her, him. We we never think, start with me. No. God would have to eliminate us, folks. And I hope you realize this also. Do not think of evil in terms of things that are just kind of happening. They just kind of happen. I'm granting there's natural disasters as the earth groans and labors. But folks, I hope you realize it's been estimated not just by Christians, but by thinking people who do research, 90% of the suffering and evil in our world comes at the hands of a human being who does it to another human being. As people choose to go to war and genocide and human trafficking and murders and torture and racial discrimination and domestic abuse and sexual abuse and rape and on and on and on I could go. God did not create us or this world for any of this. But we chose one when we rebelled against him. We are the source of 90% of this evil. And 2 Peter tells us, oh my goodness, praise God that he is patient and long-suffering. He delays his return, not because it does not stir him or move him to see so much suffering and evil, but so that more could be rescued and come to faith in Christ. 2 Peter says, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to the saving knowledge. He delays his return so that more of these rebellious, wicked, sinful people could actually be rescued and saved and become his adopted, redeemed people. That's how much he loves us. He could have just wiped us out. That would have solved evil. But instead... God chose to send his son into our world to redeem us, buy us back, and to rescue this entire creation from its chaos and groaning. Because I hope you realize, folks, when I hear people, you know, kind of diss heaven, don't want to go there. Usually they have a concept of floating around, I'm chubby, and I'm playing a harp. I'm not interested either. Don't want to be chubby, don't want to float, don't want to play a harp. Folks, you do realize as you read the Bible, 
God is going to glorify himself, not just by redeeming people, but by taking this groaning, chaotic, under corruption creation and setting it free and showing once again it in its pristine state. There'll be a new heaven and earth. Imagine this place. We're already moved by it now. We're moved by oceans and streams and mountains and snow and animals and bird of paradise flowers and smells and taste and music and color and math. We're going to have all of that minus sin. It's going to go from grainy black and white to HD living color, a new heaven and new earth. That's what he's going to do. That's what the power of the cross can do, not just save people, but it will redeem this entire creation and set it free from its groaning and corruption and bondage to sin. We're the ones in this world through which evil is done to other people. Recently, I watched a disturbing movie that I don't recommend for date night or family night. My sweet baby love wanted nothing to do with it. I even had to turn it off early. It was just so troubling to me. But it's helpful to be reminded of these things. The movie's called Blood Diamond. And it's about the atrocities in Sierra Sierra Leone. They were caused by the internal conflict in that country over the diamond trade. Right? That resource that they had should have made that one of the wealthiest country with, oh my goodness, marvelous health care and distribute. See, human beings always think, well, let's distribute that wealth and let's build schools and let's build hospitals. News alert. Because of the human heart, it's usually a few at the top kill to keep it all for themselves. Africa is one of the richest nations in the world and yet they have struggled. And I'm not throwing them under the bus as worse sinners than us. But it's the problem of distribution and it's people at the top that say, me, my family will build bigger palaces, we'll have it all, and not you. That's the evil human heart. That's not just evil somehow hanging as a mist somewhere. It happens through people. And so it wreaked havoc. These were people committing atrocities against their own people for diamonds. Because a few wanted it all for themselves. And at one point, the main character turns to his friend and he says, sometimes I wonder if God will ever forgive us for what we've done to each other. But then I look around and I realize that God left this place a long time ago. Oh, folks, I've got wonderful news for you. No, he did not. In fact, he stepped into our world took on flesh and came into our world. Oh, listen to me. The cross is the ultimate answer to the question of suffering and evil. Our world just continues to think, more money, more education, more money, more education. Don't hear me saying we should not relieve suffering with some money and that we should not try to educate. But when you understand your Bible, money and education will never solve the suffering and evil because it's in the human heart. It will come one man or woman at a time as they come to faith in Christ and have a new heart and are set free from the bondage of sin and actually have the capacity to care about someone other than themselves. We have some of the greatest news. This is the answer for our world. Jesus, not money, not education, Jesus. When you look at the cross, folks, 
You do not see a cold, indifferent God. You see a God that is so committed to ending the suffering and evil in our world that he was willing to lay aside his privileges and rights as God and take on flesh and come into our world to lay down his life in payment for ours and to drink the cup of evil and God's wrath dry in our place. Romans chapter five, verse eight, shows us how God's love interrupts and reinterprets the suffering, the suffering and confusion that's going on all around you. Because it starts with two of my favorite words in the Bible. But God. Say it with me. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were starting to do better and turning to him anyway, no, while we were still, say it, sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, there's two great verbs in that verse that are not in the same verb tense. I don't know if you noticed that. And they're not for a very good reason. Look at the end of the verse. Christ died for us. What tense is that? Past, it's done, finished, it's historical, never need to be repeated again. So you would think that Paul would say up front, but God demonstrated way back then. He doesn't. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, but God demonstrates. It's in the present tense, why? Because today, folks, that is still how God is showing us that he loves us. It's still on display. It's still jaw-dropping. It's still his main way that he proves he loves you. For all time, in all of history, the cross of Jesus Christ will stand as how you know God loves you. Now, some of you aren't gonna like this, but it's true, what I'm about to say. God doesn't need to do anything new for you to prove his love to you. Sometimes I hear people say, but what has God done for me lately? And I get it. There's something hard going on and they want it removed. But folks, God's way of proving his love is not to divert tornadoes and redirect floodwaters and remove cancer cells and straighten out crooked limbs. You could have your limbs straightened and you could be cancer free. And if you don't have your biggest problem solved, your sin problem, you are still on your way to an eternal place of torment. He loves us enough to solve our biggest problem, our sin problem. That's why in Romans 8, Paul said, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all on the cross, how shall he not also with him Freely give us all things. That is not a name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. The king's kids go first class verse. That is if he loved you that much to solve your biggest problem, he will give you right now freely everything you need to go through this. You're not alone. Everything you need to go through this suffering and this adversity and this furnace and whatever it is, he's with you. He's with you. He's with you. See, the last thing I want to point out as we close is this. I hope you realize, and if you think for a minute, I think you'd have to agree with me. 
the evil and suffering in our world and the pain of it is often what drives us to God. Now, I'll grant you, evil and suffering has caused many people to question, how can there be a God? But I hope you realize evil and suffering and pain has actually caused thousands, if not millions of people to run into the arms of God. Because by nature, we want to be godless and autonomous and self-sufficient, and I'll just take care of it myself. And it's only when your world falls apart, and it's only when something dear is shaken or taken. Do not hear me saying God is sitting in the heavens with the pain button and the suffering button saying it's about time for more of this he's not the author of evil but he's good enough and sovereign enough that he can use even this evil and suffering in our world to draw more people to him because often it's only after our world is rocked that we even begin to say you know what i do think i need more than me there's got to be more there must be a god often people will point to the holocaust and i agree as horrific and places like Auschwitz as evidence of evil to the point that there cannot be a God. Auschwitz and the Holocaust proves there can't be a God. Folks, people like Viktor Frankl who survived Auschwitz, who was there, speaks to the contrary. Viktor Frankl says this, quote, those who say that about the evil that was there were not in Auschwitz. In fact, he says, far more people deepened or discovered faith in Auschwitz than lost it. Why? Again, it's because very often until you're stripped away and everything's taken, only then does the human sometimes say, ah. That's why C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. If he keeps just giving you more great things, you'll just have a little tiny God whispering on the side. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Again, don't hear me saying he's the author of evil. He's not. But he can use pain. It is a megaphone. C.S. Lewis went on to say, pain plants the flag of truth in the heart of a rebel soul. It's often then that you're like, many human beings will not lay down arms or surrender until there's enough pain and suffering. Even if we we spent the rest of the afternoon and I said, all right, let's hear the stories, right? Let's hear this. I've been a pastor 32 years. Let's hear the stories. How'd you come to faith in Christ? Setting aside young children that in God's goodness, he met them early on. They were taught, they trusted, hallelujah. What do you think we'd hear? Oh, that year I got a double bonus and hair grew back on my head and my wife lost 40 pounds. I said, I need God. I don't know how I'm gonna get through stuff like this. Oh, no. What would we hear? When I went through that divorce, it rocked my world. When We lost that child when my mother went through cancer, when pain, suffering causes many human beings to run into the arms of God. 
Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. But oh, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. That you have stepped into our suffering and evil and sin. And have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Solved our biggest problem. Thank you for being a compassionate, caring, good, all-powerful God. And we will do what we sang about earlier. We will trust you with the things we don't understand. We will trust you. We will not allow our human logic to lead us to places that malign your character. We're going to hold on to good, hold on to all-powerful, and trust you knowing that he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for Saul, that you'll give us freely what we need in this short interim of suffering and darkness while you delay so that others can be rescued from their rebellion and sin. Oh, thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.